Here we are. Good morning. All right, here's what I want to do right off the bat. If you are a mom, a grandma, a stepmom, a mother-in-law, would you please stand up at this time? Happy Mother's Day to you. Let's give them a hand. About a year ago, we did a series here at Fellowship of Faith for the, the very first time called Questions You Never Thought You Could Ask in Church. And we went into it a bit unexpectedly, wondering what the outcome was going to be. And it was such an incredible time of outpouring of questions that, that people here in our community had that often, I think, tend to go unanswered and pushed below the surface in church that we decided to do it again today and next week. Now, I want to share something with you, and I shared it with you last week. Um, ben, if you could put the next slide up for me, that'd be great, all right? Last week, what I shared with you uh, was one of our core values here at Fellowship of Faith. I am going to read it again in its entirety. A desire to be real. We believe the church needs to be a place where people can come and see that Christians are real people experiencing real joys, passions, and struggles. Because of this, we strive to communicate God's truth and share our experiences in open and honest ways. We believe it is important as a community to be honest about our shortcomings, authentic in our lives, and sincere in what we teach. We want to be humble as a church and express our faith in a way that is genuine. Which brings us to today. Because I am fully convinced that right now, each of you here in this room have questions about God, about God's intersection with, intersection with life, about the Bible, about theology, about church in general, about fellowship of faith in particular. And I'm also convinced that right now, a lot of you have carried these questions around unspoken because... Maybe you're embarrassed to ask them. Maybe you're sitting here today and, and, and you go, I've been a Christian for 25 years and all my friends are Christian and I grew up in the church. And if I was to ever ask this question, it would reveal that there is something I am really ignorant about and that's just a little embarrassing. All right, today is a day of all days to go, what a crock, all right? Not to underestimate your emotion or undermine your emotion in it, but, but if church can't be a place where we can ask the honest questions that we have, what are we doing here? There's others of you in this room right now that maybe you've been coming here for years, uh, or, or, or maybe your spouse is really the strong Christian in the family, and you kind of go with the flow. But there's always been these issues, these roadblocks or stumbling blocks, or these basic questions that you've had that you're afraid to express because maybe they're not popular. Or maybe it reveals that you have a certain doubt about God. Or, or you're challenging what's considered to be a certain core idea about what a, a particular family or church says about God, and you've never brought them up. Because you're afraid of being judged, you're afraid of being looked at differently. Today is your day. We don't care if your questions are small. We don't care if your questions are big. We don't care if your questions are specific. We don't care if your questions are heretical. Whatever question you might have, faith begins and faith moves forward 
by having the courage to finally ask, God, what about this? And so here's what we're going to do. Next slide, please. You have a phone number right here, 1-815-314-0363. For the next 20 minutes or so that we're going to spend together, what I'm going to do is invite you to text in to this number any questions that you might have. God, faith, life, religion, church, theology, fellowship of faith. And I will do my absolute best to address them in a straightforward honest way right here on the spot as they start to come in. So if you have your phones, pull them out, please. Make sure they are turned on. And here we go, one 314 That's 3140-F-O-F. Like that, huh? All right. Now, I had one question come in earlier this week. While you begin texting your questions in, I'm going to get them here in a second. But I did have a question come in this week just to kind of get us started here today, and and I think you can help us out. It was in one of our uh, discipleship groups here at Fellowship of Faith. And uh, just this past Thursday, in the church year, there was a holiday that was celebrated. Anyone know what it is? I like three of you. Okay, great. You were in that group. Ascension Day. All right? And someone asked the question, A, what is Ascension Day? And B, how come it always kind of gets just glossed over in church? All right, so let me go to A first, then B, all right? First of all, what is Ascension Day? After Jesus died and then rose from the dead, he spent 40 days here on earth with his disciples. After 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus was lifted up, like literally and physically, into heaven. So he ascended. And the theological significance of Ascension Day is that if Easter is the defeat of the enemy, it's the final battle, Ascension Day is Jesus then stepping forward to take the throne. So think of the Lion King, all right? Easter is when when, when Simba finally throws Scar down and Scar is destroyed, all right? And Ascension Day is when Simba starts going up on Pride Rock and the the skies start to part and he gives the roar and his reign now begins. Does that make sense? Okay, that is Ascension Day. Now, why does Ascension Day get glossed over? Well, I think we need to correct that right here at Fellowship of Faith right now. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to get on your feet and I want you to cheer for Ascension Day like there is no tomorrow, okay? With every fiber of your being, you need to scream, you need to shout, the Cubs have won the World Series because it is Ascension Day, all right? And let's not be accused of being a church that glosses over something as cool as that, all right? So on your feet, ready? And here we go. On the count of three, everyone has to own this. You can't like, okay, is my neighbor going to cheer? No, no, you've got to own this. You can stand on chairs. You can stage dive, all right? All of this is totally fine. On three, cheer your guts out for Ascension Day. One, two, three. All right, go ahead and take a seat. All right, by this point, questions should be coming in. Let's see what we got. Here we go. Question number one. It's coming. 
Will the universe implode with J.J. Abrams directing both Star Trek and Star Wars? Followed by, or will it be heaven on earth? No, the universe will not implode, and yes. Heaven on earth? Yes, it will be. Great question. All right, next one. What is the church's position on abortion? How are you involved? Great question. The church's position on abortion is this. Cutting through the terminology, the debates, and the typical lines that these types of of conversations fall on. Personally, and, and, and we here as a church position at Fellowship of Faith, believe that when someone is conceived, they are a human. And that when someone is conceived, they are alive. So, even before being born, it is a human life. Call it a baby, call it a fetus, that doesn't really seem to be what the debate is about. It's a human life. And God says that human life is made in his image. And that human life is something that is sacred, that needs to be treated with dignity, that needs to be protected at all cost. And so for that reason, in most cases, when it comes to the question of abortion, we view it as something that is counter to what God's desire is. It's something that defiles and takes a human life. On rare occasion, there are times where there's difficult decisions to be made, a choice between one life and another like that of a mom versus that of her unborn child. And for any of you who have ever been in that position, the agony of having to try to make that, we, we understand. But it's for that reason that we say abortion, in most cases, because it is in violation of God's plan, is a sin. And something that, that we should stand back from when tempted to go into, say, Lord, as hard as this is and as difficult as this is, I'm going to honor you and trust our lives to God in that way. So, again, I, I, I will just kind of mention this now. Sometimes a question raises ten more questions to which I say, yes. All right? And if that be the case, know that you can always text in with another as a follow-up. Next question. I support gays in the movement for their equal rights, including their civil unions. Is that, quote wrong. There's a couple of different ways I can go about um, approaching this, um, because at one level, this is a political question as opposed to a theological question. Um, The reality of life in the United States, and I think it's a reality that we like, is that there is considered equal rights for everyone who is a citizen, and in many cases, even for those who aren't. And so therefore, in a political scheme, supporting equal rights for someone who is homosexual versus someone who might not be stands to reason. There isn't cruel and unusual punishment for a heterosexual. So there shouldn't be cruel and unusual punishment for a homosexual. A heterosexual has a right to free speech. A homosexual should also, by our constitution, have right to free speech. What's fascinating to me about the debate, though, is that these are political debates. You don't see Jesus nearly as concerned with setting up a government structure as you do with cutting into the heart of the matter of a soul. So I'm going to kind of lift out some of the political side of this and maybe breathe in to homosexuality itself just a little bit. Uh, Do you support civil unions? Um, Again, it's political. 
and it depends what you mean. Do you think that someone who is gay should have the protection of HIPAA law? Um, Insurance benefits. Those are political things that the Bible doesn't speak to specifically. But when it speaks to homosexuality at the core, it calls it something that is at odds with what God designed sexuality to be. And so when it comes to the gay question, I think the simple answer is homosexuality is not what God intended. But God loves these people. God loves you. God loves us who struggle with this kind of thing. And God's grace is big enough, big enough for, 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 for every sin of every kind and to relegate homosexuality to some kind of outcast place that Jesus doesn't love or touch also misses a point. So that might raise more. I'll let you field it from there. Next question. Luke 23, verse 43. Today you will be with me in paradise. Okay, it's quoting it. Apostles' Creed, it says, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell. Question, which was it, paradise or hell? Are you following the question here? If Jesus is on the cross and he says, today you'll be with me in paradise, and then the Apostles' Creed says he descended into hell, can you see that thief on the cross going, no, thank you very much, I think the cross is just fine for a while, you know? No, it's absolutely paradise there, and it's a misunderstanding of, of the language of the Apostles' Creed. Um, those of you who grew up in Catholic or Lutheran traditions are probably very used to saying he descended into hell. Those of you who grew up in Reformed traditions, you might know or have forgotten that when they come to that phrase and translate it out of the Greek into English, it says he descended to the place of the dead. He descended to the grave, something like that. What does it mean when we say that Jesus descended into hell? There is at most one scripture passage in the entire Bible. It's in 1 Peter 3. You can look it up, and I'll get a question in 5 on it. Um, That deals even remotely with Jesus going to hell. It says that Jesus went to free the, the spirits who had been imprisoned long ago. And so when Jesus went to hell, Jesus did not go to suffer. He did not go to pay some kind of penalty. He did not go to be a victim to the devil. That was taken care of on the cross. Jesus went to hell as a victory march. Jesus went to hell as a liberator. Jesus went to hell kind of like you got to imagine special forces coming into a hostile village and freeing POWs, okay? This was what Jesus was doing there. And was he there for three days? I don't know. It doesn't say. But the fact that he tells the thief, you're going to be with me in paradise, no, we're not talking about hell. Um, At most, let me throw this out just as conjecture. Think World War II. Think occupied Paris. Think American forces coming into Paris. A moment before American forces came into Paris, could that have been considered hell under Nazi control? The moment after they liberated Paris, did Paris change from hell to heaven? Think about it. Next question. It might be a follow-up. What is the biblical stance on gay marriage? What is our church stance? Um, The biblical stance on on gay marriage is that marriage is between a man and a woman. 
Um, and so the, 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 the very thought of, of, of homosexual marriage does not fit in God's idea or plan of what marriage is supposed to be. And so therefore, as a church that says the Bible is what defines our ideas of right and wrong, governs what we say, what we do, what we believe in our worldview, our church's stance on, on gay marriage also is that gay marriage is not something that is in accord with God's plan. Next question. Do you pray to the Father or to Jesus? And uh, as a follow-up right on its heels, what can you say to someone who says they believe but never, ever go to church? How do you get them to church? Okay, let me take these separately. Do you pray to the Father or to Jesus? Yeah. Yeah. Um, You could pray to either one that you want. Think about it like talking to your parents, all right? Do you talk to your mom or your dad? Now, there may be a reality of one that you talk to more than the other, but do you see the issue with the question to begin with? God doesn't care if you pray specifically to the Father, to, the Jesus, to, to Jesus, or, or let's add this one. Do you ever pray to the Holy Spirit? And if not, how come? I mean, why, why does he always get like the 3 a.m. time slot, you, you know? No, you could pray to either of them. They're in community with each other. And, and, and you see the disciples and the apostles and, and the believers of God doing this exact same thing, praying to God sometimes in his totality and sometimes by specific names. So I just encourage you, give yourself a lot of freedom in that. Now, what can you say to someone who says they believe but never, ever go to church? Without knowing the context, my first question would simply be, what do you believe? And my purpose in asking the question wouldn't be to grill them. For me, it would be to say, here's a person that God loves, and I'm just really curious what you believe. And then I I would follow up, how come you don't go to church? What happened? And I would listen to what they had to say, and based on those responses, I would meet them right where they were at. And the reality is, if we were to go around the room right now and ask how many people here have been burned by a church... My bet is at least 80% of the hands would be in the air. Which says to me, not every single local community is for every single person. And sometimes a church situation in one place begins to speak so loudly from one perspective that a person can be blinded to what else is out there or to who God really is, because sometimes it's distorted. And sorting through those kinds of things becomes absolutely key. Next question. In my age group, atheism is constantly surrounding me. Sometimes it's hard to keep my faith in God. How, how, how do I not let my peers influence me and strengthen my relationship with God? First of all, the very fact that you're asking the question off the bat is huge. There is a reality of life, though. That which you surround yourself with has an effect on you. That which you immerse yourself in begins to rub off. What I love about Jesus is that he loved being with those who were far from God. And he immersed himself with them. 
but he didn't immerse himself only with them. And my encouragement to you, wherever you are, if you're out there, is saying, if these people are your friends and you can keep your identity and your strength and your integrity of who you are, then fantastic. But make sure to surround yourself with people who are edifying you and building you up in your faith as well. And to any of you whose circle is continuing to denigrate something within your soul, sometimes there is a tough decision that all of us have had to make in one, 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 one case or another of saying, the effect you have on me is creating something toxic in me. And sometimes it's one of the hardest decisions you can make, but the most necessary. Not just to protect the faith, but to protect the integrity of who you are. Next question. How do you know when you're truly in love? (laughs) Next question. (laughs) When you meet a woman like Tina Gadini, you just know. Yeah, I'm dodging it. If God put all the planets in the solar. (laughs) How do you know when you're truly in love? You don't always. You don't. Let me ask you, what do you mean by love? How are you actually defining your term? Because I think we get a lot of mileage out of this tired English word, love. For some people, love is, is, is a deep sense of affection. It's laden with emotion, and it has the idea of like being a best friend. I know other people that love is an act of the will. Love is not what you feel. Love is what you do. That regardless of how I feel about you, it's how I treat you and how I posture myself before you. I know for other people, love equals passion. Love equals intimacy. Love equals sexuality. Which of those three people is right? Does it seem to reduce love to just put it to one of those pockets? My encouragement to you would be, if you're asking yourself that question, test it. Give it time. Don't act rashly on that love to make lifelong decisions without testing the quality of that love and yet at the same time risk your heart. Risk your heart to see what grows. Because I don't always think of love as something that is or that isn't, but often something that, ex- that, that exists in certain degrees on a spectrum. Next question. If God put all the planets in the solar system, why didn't he make more planets livable to the human race? Well, in the solar system, I don't know. All right? Because they're too far from the sun or they're too close to it. All right? That's the answer. Other solar systems... Maybe he did. Why should we study the Bible? Why should we follow its precepts? Is it relevant today? Three questions, one at a time. Why should we study the Bible? Because it is God's way of talking to you. And if you want a relationship with someone, there has to be communication. 
Do you want to know what God thinks about you, what God says to you, what God breathes into your soul, what, what God wants to tell you about you and about him and what it means to be together about life? This is what the Bible does. It is not just a dusty history book. Why should we follow its precepts? Because if you're radically in love with someone, you want to please them. And what God describes when he shares with you in the Bible what he's like and what he wants is he's telling you, hey, hey, this is what makes me happy. This is what a life with me is like. It's kind of like those rare moments, guys, right, when your wife actually says explicitly what she wants and you're like, I'm putting this on the calendar because this never happens. You, you know what I mean? It, you remember these things because you know what it is going to equal, right? Joy in the relationship, all right? Guys, it's okay. You can admit it, all right? I'm looking at this. You're getting really squeamish. You can admit it. That's why we follow it. Because if you love someone, you want to delight someone, don't you? Not to mention that when the God of the universe has ideas about life, living in accord with them probably bring about a lot of truth, harmony, and groundedness in your world. And is it relevant to today? Absolutely, is the short answer. But what I love about the Bible is it doesn't even seem to care if it's relevant or not. This is my message. This is what I'm about, God says. And whether it fits in with your culture, I don't really give a rip. I want you to have a relationship with me. And here's what it's all about. Great question. Here's the next one. What if you believe everyone is saved by Jesus, whether they're a believer or not? I, I, okay, cool. Um, Let me approach it this way. We as Christians believe all kinds of inconsistent things. Now, whether you believe everyone is saved despite being a believer or not is not the question I'm going to get into here. What the question I'm going to get into here is inconsistency. Um, you can have a relationship with Jesus and believe some completely wrong things about him. And each and every one of us in this room absolutely do. All right? So... Being a Christian is not about believing everything 100% accurate. That would turn into the most oppressive work of all time. So I'll kind of leave that at that, and if you want to follow up, go with it. Next question. Have you ever felt like God isn't real? Yes. Next question. Can you pray for forgiveness for one thing more than one time? Or does God just hate you forever after you go back on it? My gosh, you can absolutely pray for forgiveness for one thing more than one time. Forgiveness is not a one-time event. Any more than love is a one-time event. Any more than giving your life to Christ is a one-time event. I think so many of us get so hung up on the forgiveness thing because we think we have to forgive this once and then everything is radically different. The people that have wounded me the most in my life, I've had to fight to forgive every day for years every day to wake up with an emotional baggage and every day to say, God, I want to hate him. I want you to judge him. I want him to get theirs. But to say, Lord, I have to choose to forgive him, even though I don't want to, even though I don't feel like it, and you might not feel like it either, you better believe forgiveness is an everyday thing. And does God hate you for turning back? God never hates you. God never hates you. Okay? God never hates you. Trust him in that. If it's not a choice, what are you supposed to do? 
I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, follow up on that one. Why is the beginning of the church year so important? It isn't. Because this one individual teenager, and I won't mention the name, doesn't like bacon on his cheeseburgers, does that mean God doesn't love him? <laughs> Possibly. God in the OT, Old Testament, is very harsh. Kill all the nations, men, women, children, animals, and and, and kill a Hebrew if they break a law. I don't like that. How does that, and then the follow-up, work with grace and mercy and forgiveness? You ever struggle with that one? It's really hard, but let me just challenge you on something. It gets very easy to think about the God in the Old Testament as being of one character and the God of the New Testament being of another. And it's easy for us to fixate on the judgment because it's so explicit in its ways in the Old Testament while, while focusing on the grace in the New because, again, it's so... Because we have pictures of, like, Jesus holding lambs in our mind, right? But the Bible is really clear. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament, And as much as you see wrath in the Old Testament, you also see mercy. And as much as you see mercy in the New Testament, you also see judgment. What the New Testament seems to do is take the Old Testament and ratchet it up in every way. Now, let me speak just to judgment. In the Old Testament, you don't really get any mention of hell. In the New Testament, it does. Would you rather face slaughter by a sword or an eternity in hell? Which is worse? Give me Old Testament any day. So I just kind of throw that out to maybe do a focus correct. But now getting back to the heart of the question, I don't like it. Yeah, I don't like it either. I don't like it either. And and the thought of judgment on anyone by God is something that is so hard to bear. And yet, if you talk to people who have been brutalized, who have been oppressed, who have been tortured, and you begin to hear their cry for justice, suddenly it starts to take on different tones. I can get into this more if you want to follow up with another question, but for now, let me just leave it. That while God is infinitely merciful, God is also infinitely just. And God in the Old Testament, despite how it gets caricaturized, was never about torturing people, was never about massacring people, was never about being flippant with life. And digging into the substructures of the text begin to reveal that. For time's sake, I won't get into it more now, but this is something I think worth pursuing in the future, and I encourage you to keep asking the question on that. Next one. Is there a place in heaven for Emmett Gosnell? I have no idea who that is. Am I, like, way out of the loop here? All right. I often go to work and think, God has to have more in mind for me but direction never seems to come. Oh, I feel your pain. 
Is it arrogant of me to be frustrated and angry with God? No. It's natural. It's natural. But let me encourage you with something. I have met people who spend their lives obsessing over trying to figure out what they're supposed to do instead of taking advantage of what they could do right now. God's direction for our lives and for most people's lives is not often to paint a 20-year vision statement where a grand leap is going to happen and you're going to be called with angelic choruses. And I don't mean to make light of it, but, but this is how we start to think. God's direction is often, here's an opportunity, it's right in front of you, take a step and see what happens. And don't worry if it's flashy or sexy or big. Don't worry what the outcome is. If you think it's right, just take that step and honor me right here. Mother Teresa began by caring for one orphan without any fanfare whatsoever, and God brought her another. Maybe the question you need to ask is, what is something that you can do right now to bless someone? to further God's kingdom, to serve. God's direction, I think, is going to breathe more out of that than out of a sign. Next question. It is very hard for me to witness baptisms where the parents just go through the motions but never tie Christ into their child's life. What are your thoughts about this? My thoughts on this, it is very hard for me to witness baptisms where the parents just go through the motions. It's worse than a name. It's damaging. People who come and, and, and parents who come with no tie to a church, no, no, no reason behind it and think that somehow some magic water is going to deliver their child unto salvation are just setting them up with a false hope. I, I'm with you. God says, I forgive your sins and remember them no more. Someone confessed a sin to me. In my heart, I forgive them, but I can't forget. It consumes me. How can I forget? A couple of things. One, you are not God. So what God has the capability of doing does not necessarily mean you will have the capability of doing. Don't beat yourself up on that. Two, forgiveness does not equal forgetting. You can't erase your brain. I mean, maybe there's some kind of chemical way in electroshock therapy that you can make it happen, but I don't really think that's where God's going, all right? I mean, that's not in your control, per se. Now, you don't have to fixate on it. But remember that you can remember something and that the wound and the pain can even still be raw, but you can forgive despite that, and just because you remember doesn't mean you haven't forgiven it consumes me. How can I forget? Maybe instead of saying, how can I forget? How can you move on? Continue to forgive every day. Doesn't mean you have to walk up to that person every day and say, I forgive you, but maybe you have to do it some days. Maybe it's time to talk to someone to say, I need to process this because sometimes getting it out of your heart alone and getting it into the open does wonderful things for putting a balm on the soul. And may I just encourage you, whoever you are, come talk to me today, okay? We'll do a couple more here for time's sake, and there's tons that have come in. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. 
For it is better to lose a body part than your whole body burn in hell. Is he being literal? Oh, I hope not. I know a great story from church history. There's a guy, his name was Origen. He had a struggle with chastity. He took the Bible literally and took matters into his own hands. What is very ironic about the story is that in his later years, Origen became the biggest proponent for the metaphorical and allegorical interpretation of Scripture. And I like to think in my mind that that was the key event that turned him, you know, on it all. Um, is Jesus being literal? You know, these, these are questions we always have to ask. I don't think that Jesus wants us to go around ripping our eyes out at will. I think what he's saying is that if something causes you to sin, cut it out of your life. If something causes you to sin, distance yourself from it to that radical extreme. And Jesus talks with hyperbole over exaggerations all the time. But before we're too easy to dismiss it, if a metaphor doesn't root itself in something that is literal, it becomes meaningless. And let's go back to the base question. What is more extreme in God's eyes? To keep sinning or to rip out an eye? I know how we'd answer. But maybe there's a corrective of sin that we shouldn't so quickly dismiss just because we don't actually do it. And let me take one more here today. If Jesus is called king of the Jews, why did the priests of Judaism reject him and kill him? Politics, for one. Shame, for another. Pride and ego, for another. And most fundamentally, because they just didn't believe it. King of the Jews was not a political title that some monarch put on Jesus at his birth. King of the Jews was not something the religious leaders ever called him. King of the Jews is a statement that God and his prophets had made about them. And the great irony of the New Testament is that the Jews simply didn't believe it. And then finally on the same one, the term all dogs go to heaven. True or not? Most dogs or slash pets love is more true and honest than, than people's. Well, to the second one, I'd agree with you on the second. Let's go to the first. Um, Do all dogs go to heaven? Do they go to heaven? I don't think so. Are they going to be raised at the last day? You better believe it. All right? And I'll let that one swim there. Guys, fantastic questions today. And what I want to do is I want to encourage you to keep on asking them. 10.30 today, it's fresh round with fresh questions. And next week, we are going to be doing the exact same thing. Keep the questions coming in. I want to encourage you, invite people to come who might be asking questions themselves. And based on answers today, if there's follow-up, follow up. All right? And, uh, and let God just breathe deeply and richly into your soul. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, Lord, when the scriptures describe you, that they call you wisdom truth, the living word. Lord, you you are the the, the embodiment, the incarnation of all wisdom and insight of of this universe. And God, I pray that that we have souls that are hungry. 
hungry to know, hungry to know you more, hungry to understand you, to approach you, to discern your will, hungry, God, to find out who you are and what you're like and what you're about, that, God, we would, we would continue to pursue you with these questions in our soul, pursuing you and what you have to say to them. God, I pray that uh, you give us glimpses, answers, truths to define our thinking, to define our lives, to define our way of being. God, God, this I pray. Amen. And I'm going to invite the band to come on forward. And as they do, I'd like, I want to invite you to rise here just for a moment. Jesus says this in John chapter 14. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. My prayer and my encouragement is that the truth of who God is is something that constantly churns within you. It's become a bit of a, a, a pivotal verse for me, and I'd just like you to repeat it here with me today. I am the way, the truth, and the life, is what Jesus says, and see if you could say it today. Ready? I am the way, the truth, and the life, and my prayer is that you may discover that every moment. Let's worship and sing.